word of God is held higher in this church than anything I ever say. And so we listen first to the word of God before we listen to Dustin or Dustin or Josh or anybody else here. Our scripture this morning is from Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 53. And we'll go to verse 58. Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 53. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Jude? And are not his sisters here with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Let's pray as we begin our time in God's word together. Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word, that it is sufficient. We thank you that, that in a time of crisis, we can go to your word and you instruct us. Lord, we thank you that when we have doubts, we can go to your word and you encourage us and build us up and turn us back to Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you that this morning you have given us a picture of just how difficult it was to be Jesus. To go to his own hometown and be rejected. Lord, give us understanding, not just of of the emotions and the feelings of what it's like to be Jesus there in that moment. But Lord, give us an understanding this morning of what unbelief is exactly. Lord, through your word, would you speak to us? And Lord, help me this morning to rightly divide your word. In Christ's name, we pray these things. Amen. Well, for the past four Almost five chapters in Matthew's gospel, we've seen this common theme woven into the story of Jesus and his people in Israel. It began way back in chapter 8, several chapters ago, with the response of a handful of townspeople whose pigs ran into the sea after a demon-possessed man was healed. And then in chapter 9, not long after that, there was a simple but damning thought in the mind of a few scribes. They had seen Jesus say that he had the authority to forgive sins. And they doubted his authority to do that. From there, the, the, the tide of unbelief seemed to come in wave after wave as we made our way through Matthew. Some Pharisees took issue with Jesus eating with sinners. And then right after that, some of John the Baptist's disciples didn't like that Jesus and the disciples weren't fasting as they did. In chapter 11, some of those same disciples of John the Baptist suspected that Jesus wasn't the one that John had prophesied about. And then there was the crowd who laughed at Jesus. And then there were the Pharisees who began to say that Jesus' power was demonic. 
And then they began to teach that Jesus' power was demonic to others. In chapter 11, entire cities were wholesale rejecting Jesus. Despite seeing his miracles, despite hearing his very clear teaching, from what we can tell in Matthew, the majority of the people in Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum have all rejected Jesus as the Christ. They don't believe he's the Messiah. And at the end of chapter 12, we find that even Jesus's own family doesn't believe that he's the Messiah. So the question then, as we approach this this middle point in Matthew's gospel seems more like who does believe rather than who doesn't. Because with a few surprising exceptions here and there, it seems like most people don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. The ones who do believe are the unclean, the Gentiles, and the ones who don't believe are the people that from every account, are people who should believe, those who are striving to live in obedience to God's law, those who teach and interpret scriptures, and even more so, the very family that Jesus comes from. But none of them believe. If we're reading Matthew carefully, then it shouldn't surprise us that when we get to our text this week, Jesus returns to his hometown And these people don't believe either. Now, at first, it seemed like they were going to, didn't it? Look with me at verse 54, will you? Verse 54 of our text this morning. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogues so that they were, look what he says, astonished. You see that in verse 54? I should have it up on the screen for you. Like seeds sown in rocky soil, immediately they they sprang up. They're astonished. But then you get the rest of the passage. And it's clear that there's there's no depth. They don't really believe. At first it's it's wow. And then not long after that, it's wait a minute. Where did this man get these things? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this Jude's brother? Isn't this James's brother? And then that unbelief reaches its conclusion in verse 57, where it says, and they took offense at him. They took offense at him. That word offense that you see there in verse 57 is from the Greek word skandalon. It's where we get the word scandalous or scandal from. And and to them, in that time period, the word meant trap or snare. It's the same word that Isaiah used to describe how Israel will respond to the Lord. Look at Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap, a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. Thou shalt be snared and taken. Paul, in Romans chapter 9, will refer to this same passage when he explains to the Roman church why it is that Israel 
as a whole rejected Jesus. Paul says this was the fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus Christ was a stone of stumbling to them, a rock of offense. And he's quoting Isaiah chapter 8. Peter also references Isaiah chapter 8 in his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. Peter says this, As you come to him, us, as we Christians come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him shall not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, look what he says, those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become a cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Same word, scandalon. A rock of offense. So for Matthew then to say that Jesus caused offense, he uses that word that Isaiah uses. When Jesus caused offense to the people from Nazareth, what Matthew is doing is bringing out the old with the new, like we talked about that last week, isn't it? He's using Isaiah's prophetic language to explain the people's rejection. And so he's providing for us Biblical evidence that Jesus is the promised Messiah. In verse 57, Jesus clues us in that this is how we're to read and understand this passage. Because look at what Jesus says. He says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his household. Jesus is doing the same thing. He's bringing out the new with the old. That's an old idea. The prophets in the Old Testament, were always rejected. 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 15 and 16. You don't have to turn there. It's hard to find. It's the very end of 2 Chronicles, and it sort of sums up all of what was happening in Judah and Israel. This is how the chronicler gives us the summary. He says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at the prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose up against his people, until there was no remedy. So, so not only are the Nazarenes, those in Nazareth, fulfilling prophecy from Isaiah by rejecting the Messiah, but their rejection is consistent with whenever God sent his messengers to Israel, speaking the word of God. The people always rejected the prophets. So, in summary, the point of our text this morning could be that Jesus is the rock of offense wherever he goes, and that fulfills the prophecies of Isaiah, and so he's the Messiah. It could also be that Jesus like Elijah and the other prophets, was clearly speaking the word of the Lord. And because of that, he was hated by those who heard him. Those are certainly, definitely, themes that Matthew wants us to see when we look at this passage. 
But then I think if we made that our point this morning, and we could, certainly could do that, many of you would sit and think, well, I'm not Israel. That was them. I'm me. Thanks for the neat history lesson. And nothing really sinks into the heart. But hold on a minute before you come to that conclusion. Yes, yes, Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. Yes, Jesus is a prophet. He's a priest. He's a king. But I want you to think for a moment, minute. If unbelief as a theme in Matthew's gospel is such a big deal, I mean, if there are more unbelievers in Matthew's gospel than there are believers, and if, and if Jesus, because of the unbelief of those in Nazareth, didn't heal people in Nazareth, didn't do many mighty works. I mean, look at, look at verse 58. Matthew gives us this summary of what happened in Nazareth. And he, Jesus, did not do many mighty works there. He did some, but he didn't do many there because of their unbelief. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus' power was limited. You can't limit the power of Jesus Christ. What it means is that there were people that Jesus chose not to heal because of this deep sickness of unbelief in Nazareth. Unbelief is a serious, serious problem in Nazareth. It's a serious problem throughout Matthew's gospel. Cosmically, it's a serious problem. John chapter 3, verse 18 says, Whoever believes in him, Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Unbelief is a serious matter. It's a huge, bright theme in Matthew's gospel. And it's a damnable offense. It's been an issue for humanity from the fall onward. So shouldn't we then examine the power of unbelief a little more closely this morning? Shouldn't we ask, what's going on in the heart? What's going on in the mind of someone who is caught in unbelief? Someone who is rejecting the lordship of Jesus Christ. Is it possible, I think you should ask this too, I know you should ask this too, I was confronted with this question, is it possible that even I, even I am rejecting Jesus as Lord? Is it possible that I am caught in unbelief? It's important to ask that question because it is the norm of the Gospels. And if it's the norm of the Gospels, then we should be very, very wary of how exactly we're responding to Jesus. So what I want to do this morning is take these few verses from our text and do an autopsy, if you will. But what's going on in the hearts and the minds of the Nazarenes who are rejecting Jesus? So I've titled our study this morning, The Anatomy of Unbelief. Because that's what we're going to do. We're going to study unbelief from a biblical perspective. Let's look closely at our passage. And I hope that you'll keep your Bible open this morning. 
Look at Matthew chapter 13, and let's look at verse 53. So Jesus has finished, we're in verse 53, Jesus has finished teaching in Capernaum, and he leaves there, Capernaum, which is by the seaside, and he's going to his hometown. And we know from elsewhere in Scripture that his hometown was Nazareth. So he's going to Nazareth. Verse 54 says that when he gets to Nazareth, he went to the synagogue and he began to teach. And apparently he did more than just teach there because in verse 54, people ask where he got his wisdom, his teaching, and his mighty works. So he did at least some mighty works when he was in Nazareth. He definitely taught, but he probably healed at least a few people. And the first reaction of the people who were at the synagogue that day is what? Look at verse 54. Astonishment. They're astonished. They're they're amazed at what they're seeing and what they're hearing. Mark, in his version of this event, in Mark chapter 6, he says something very similar. Mark chapter 6, he says, they were astonished. Luke, in Luke chapter 4, in his account of this story, he puts it this way. During the sermon, everyone's eyes were fixed on him. And then when it was over, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that came from his mouth. Luke 4.22. The point is this. The first reaction that Nazareth had to Jesus' teaching was unadulterated awe. Marvel, astonishment. The people loved hearing him preach. I mean, think about what he must have sounded like. He's the son of God. He is the word of God. The voice that spoke creation into existence. How could someone not be captivated by his voice? And though their inhale was a gasp, of amazement. Their exhale, as Matthew tells us, was a tirade of rhetorical questions only meant to defy his lordship. What happened in that breath of time? Well, what happened is that the people began to reveal their hearts. They revealed the presuppositions, the biases of their hearts. They went into the synagogue that day with a preconceived notion of who they believed God to be. And so because of the hardness of their hearts, despite clear and irrefutable evidence in front of them, they went out of the synagogue that day, continuing as they had been when they went in. It didn't matter to them that they were in the very presence of God. It didn't matter to them that they had received grace from him that no one ever in the history of the world had ever received. That's how unbelief works. It's a power over us. It's a power that grips us. They went into the synagogue deaf and blind to the true and living God, and they came out of the synagogue the same way. Let me show you how this works on a, on a far less cosmic scale. Something you're probably very familiar with over the last 10 or so weeks, okay? Think for a moment about someone 
that you usually disagree with. Someone, maybe not usually, maybe let's say often. Think of someone you often disagree with. So if you're a Republican, think of our governor. If you're a Democrat, think for a moment about our president. If you're an independent, well, you're no better. You would disagree with everyone. So just pick any politician. Do you have this person in mind? Someone you usually disagree with? Now suppose, hypothetically, that this person were to make a crucial announcement. There's a football field-sized meteor heading straight for your zip code. And your first thought is awe, astonishment, amazement, and probably fear. Oh no, I might die. This isn't good. That's our first reaction. There's something in us as humans that will give a message the attention it deserves. We're verbal people. We're people who communicate with one another. Everything we know comes from communication. And so something in us gives a message the attention it deserves, regardless of what that message is. And then, though, right after your heart has skipped a beat, your biased brain, your mind kicks in. And you ask that question, is there really a meteor? Right after all, this message, I want to remind you, comes from that fill-in-the-blank politician that you usually disagree with. You went from a split second of awe and amazement back to your presupposition that everything this person says is false. And then your mind begins to do its reasoning work. You will invent reasons not to believe what you're hearing. Oh, this must be a campaign stunt. Oh, this must be a conspiracy to introduce Marxist government. Oh, there must be an evil lurking in this message because all people from such and such political drive are evil. And on down the well-worn path we go. This person is always wrong. This person has spoken. They must be wrong. And here are my reasons. And here is my conclusion. What this person said was wrong again. And round and round and round, our circular argument goes. That's how our hearts tick. We are, by nature, stubborn, self-centered, hard-hearted, and once we become convinced of something, we are very, very, very slow to learn anything that would suggest that what we believe is false. And when it comes to responding to God as he really is, we are far worse than we even know. And we see this in Nazareth. The Nazarenes, at the beginning of verse 54, hear a message from Jesus. He preaches to them. And that message, if we're to take the rest of Matthew into account, probably goes something like this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, and I'm the king. According to Luke's telling of this event, 
Jesus preached from Isaiah chapter 61 that morning, and he told the people at the end of his message that he was fulfilling Isaiah 61. In other words, he told them he was the Messiah. And the people hear the message, and they're astonished. And they immediately, what do they do? They remember their presuppositions. Jesus can't be the Messiah. Because he isn't how I imagined Messiah to be. He can't be God because he's not how I imagined God to be. And then begins the reasoning, the rationalization, the defense of their unbelief. And all of this begins with this first rhetorical question. Where did this man get his wisdom and these mighty works? The first words out of their mouths reveal their presupposition, their assumption. Do you see what it is? What is their first assumption? That he's only a man, merely a man. Look again at the text. Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? He's only a man. Most wrong assumptions about Jesus stem from this fatal error. Either we assume he's only a man, and if that's the case, well, we're in serious trouble because he could not fully atone for our sins. Or we err on the other side and assume that he's only God. But if that's the case, then he didn't really die, and he couldn't have really paid the guilt price for our sins. But Jesus is man. He is 100% man, and Jesus is God, totally 100% divine. And many of us, because we trust in our own experience and in our own intuition so much, we then say, one cannot be 100% man and 100% God. That's not how percentages work. Therefore, he is either a man who became God, or he's some mixture of God and man, or he is God who became man and then after his resurrection became God again but never fully both at the same time, because that's not the way I have experienced the world. You see what's happening? We presuppose that what we believe the truth to be is the truth, and then we try and fit Jesus into that. We do this in many, 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 many ways. And here's kind of the summary of it. It doesn't seem right to me that God would be like such and such. Therefore, God isn't like that. Nazareth did it. And so do we in our own Nazarene way. Unbelief, at its core, attempts to fit everything, including God and his nature, into human experience. To the Nazarenes, Jesus is only a man. And with that presupposition come their conclusions. A man cannot have the type of wisdom that we're hearing from him. A man cannot be doing the types of works that this Jesus is doing. Therefore, something suspicious is going on. There is some rational explanation to all of this whether it's a conspiracy or it's demonic 
whatever it is, what I'm hearing and seeing cannot be true. So my mind will create a world of reality for me to live in. They're caught in their unbelief. And then in their pride, they defend their unbelief. He's only a man. Now, watch what they do next. Look at verse 55 with me. Verse 55. Second rhetorical question. Is this not the carpenter's son? See, they're building on their argument. Proposition one, he's only a man. Proposition two, not only is he just a man, he's the son of a carpenter. Now, a carpenter in those days isn't the same way that we think of a carpenter today. He wasn't just a woodworker. He was a builder. He would have known how to cut and fit stones together to make the walls of homes and the outsides of towns. He would have known how to fix your flour mill, your grain mill when it broke, or your oil press when it broke. He could make you a wheelbarrow. He could, he could raise a roof for you. He could build your house. That was essentially what a carpenter was. This was the guy you went to if you needed something built or fixed. And he didn't wear a red dress because he couldn't have. He was a carpenter. In a small town like Nazareth, everybody knew this guy. Everybody knew who he was and what he did for a living. And everybody knew that he didn't have a lot of academic training. Carpenters, you see, weren't known for their academic or theological prowess. They likely would have known a good deal of scripture from memory, simply because they were Jews. But it would have been unlikely that your average carpenter would know how to read. Let me read for you what happens in John's gospel when Jesus, same Jesus, carpenter Jesus, goes to the temple during the Feast of Booths to preach. John chapter 7, verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it? that this man has learning when he's never studied. When they ask that question, how is it that this man has learning? They're literally asking, how does this man know how to read? The King James actually translates the passage this way. How knoweth this man letters? He's, he's a carpenter. He shouldn't know these things. He can't know these things. And that's still a common argument against Christianity, isn't it? Christianity, this belief in a Messiah who died for our sins, it's simple. It's outdated. It's unsophisticated. It's old-fashioned. Time has moved on. Jesus and his teachings must modernize and update or get left behind. Here, here's kind of the, the basis of that assumption. Something cannot be true if it is old. Chronological snobbery, isn't it? Christianity is old, therefore it can't be true. That's a horrendously fallacious argument. And yet, that's the argument that comes naturally to one who is caught in unbelief. Because in our sin, we prefer our own present opinion above all other opinions. 
And because our opinion is new to us and fresh to us, anything older must be false. So, proposition one, according to Nazarenes, he's only a man. Proposition two, he's a simple man at that. Now, proposition three, is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers, James and Joseph, Simon, Judas? In other words, we know where he comes from. We're familiar with this man. He can't be the Messiah because we saw him grow up. This is the, you'll never amount to anything more than me because I changed your diapers argument. Jesus can't be the Messiah. I know all his brothers, all four of them, and none of them is particularly royal or dignified. James did a lousy job fixing my ox cart. I was with Joseph last week at the pub, and Simon got in a fight with my nephew, and Judas is dating my daughter. And to top it off, Mary got pregnant before she was even married. Jesus can't be the Messiah. We know the family he comes from. This is the familiarity breeds contempt concept at play. And this one, I want to slow down here because this familiarity with Jesus is particularly dangerous for families and kids who've grown up in the church from the day they were born. When we grow up familiar with Jesus, we can become inoculated against the power of the gospel. We can come to church week in, week out from the day we're born and get just enough Jesus to become familiar with who he is. But not enough Jesus to know that salvation means living under his kingship. I call this cowpox Jesus. Many of you know, in the 18th century, after hundreds of years of fighting against the virus that causes smallpox, people began to discover that if you had been infected with cowpox, a far less dangerous disease, then you developed an immunity to smallpox. There's a cowpox version of Christianity, too. It's the kind you can live with. The kind that doesn't demand your life. It's a kind of Christianity that gives you just enough familiarity with Jesus that you can go to church, you can sit under preaching, you can go to Bible studies, maybe even occasionally feel conviction here and there. You might even feel better about yourself for doing the right thing occasionally. But ultimately, because of your familiarity with Jesus, you become immune to his call to repent and die to yourself to follow him. Cowpox Christianity isn't really Christianity. And so we shouldn't be surprised at all when a family where mom and dad are teaching Jesus as a sort of side dish, but not living in obedience to Jesus Christ, is a family that is inoculating their kids against who Jesus really is. They're raising Nazarenes. 
Those kids grow up and say, oh, yeah, I know about Jesus. He's the kid I grew up hearing about every week. I know everything I need to know about Jesus. I tried him for a while, but it didn't make any difference in my parents' life, and it didn't make any difference in my life. I don't have anything against him, but I'm doing fine without him. Familiarity with Jesus is not saving faith. Familiarity breeds contempt. Proposition one from the heart of an unbeliever in Nazareth. Jesus is only a man. Proposition two. He's a simple man. Proposition three. I already know him. In Proposition 4, we see in verse 56. Look at the beginning of verse 56. And are not all his sisters with us? In other words, what they're saying is, he's one of us. He's no different than the rest of us here in Nazareth. He can't be the Messiah because none of us is the Messiah. I can't submit to him as king. He's just like me. And nobody's submitting to me as king. Nobody's bowing down to me as God. And so why should I bow down to this man who's my brother-in-law? He's from Nazareth. And we Nazarenes are not kings. We know our place. We're just an honest, hardworking people. And this man with all his extravagant claims is an embarrassment to us. And then at the end of verse 56, we see the same argument as the beginning. Where then did this man get all these things? The last question is the same as the first question. Do you see that? So here's our presupposition. Here's our four arguments, and then here's our conclusion that is the same as our presupposition. It's a circular argument. The presupposition is unbelief. Jesus cannot be the Messiah. And then the four arguments support, or presumably support, that presupposition. And then here's the thing that we need to see. Those four arguments are all true statements. Look at it carefully. Jesus is a man, isn't he? Now, he's not merely a man, but he is a man. He's absolutely a man. Jesus was a carpenter. Yes. He's doing the work his daddy raised him to do. The people know his family. Also true. It's a small town. Maybe, at the very most, historians say there were 500 people living there. Most, though, say there were probably closer to 200 people living in Nazareth at that time. It's a small town. Everybody knows everybody. Everyone knew Jesus' family. So it's a true statement. And Jesus is from Nazareth. That's also true. All of the reasons that the Nazarenes give in order to prop up their unbelief are true reasons. And here's what we need to know about unbelief. Unbelief is nearly always mixed with truth. When the serpent told Adam and Eve that if they ate of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, that they would be like God in knowing good and evil. Was that true? It was. 
When Israel grumbled in the wilderness because they didn't have meat and garlic and leeks, was it true that they had those things in Egypt? It was. When Peter was afraid that he might be killed if he admitted to being with Jesus, was that a legitimate fear? Was that a legitimate reason to deny Jesus Christ three times? Yes. He could have been hanged. He could have been stoned simply by associating with Jesus. And Peter knew it. And his unbelief came from that truth. When you're anxious about finances, friend, and you fear that giving towards the work of the ministry will lead to restrictions in your budget and in your spending habits, that fear, that unbelief, well, that that follows from the true statement. There will be restrictions on your spending habits if you choose to tithe. When you refuse to forgive someone because you are afraid that they may not receive the just punishment on this earth that you think that they deserve, and so you, determined to dole out your own punishment on them, continuously, that action of unbelief follows from a true sentiment. Unbelief is always a mixture of truth. That's how unbelief maintains its power over you. You can rationalize it. You can convince yourself that your unbelief is reasonable. That is a reasonable and right response to the circumstances that you're facing. You can convince yourself that And then you can persuade yourself that what you believe is true, because much of it is. The problem, the problem, the Achilles heel, is that our argumentation is flawed. It's circular. It's what we call confirmation bias. Look again at the reasoning of the Nazarenes. Jesus cannot be Messiah because he is a man. I know he is a man because I know his family and I grew up with him. Therefore, he's a man. Therefore, he cannot be the Messiah. You see their argument? What the world calls confirmation bias, the Bible calls sin. In the long run, our sin nature distorts our ability to reason well. The problem with unbelief is this. We fail to take into consideration the truth that sits right in front of us. Paul. And Romans 1.18 says that in our unrighteousness, that is, in our sinful nature, we suppress the truth. We know the truth. We recognize it for what it is when we hear it, especially when it comes from the mouth of God. Nazareth knew the truth. It smacked them in the face and it shocked them. Their astonishment is evidence of their awareness of the truth. Deep inside their hearts, created in the image of God, they knew that this man was God incarnate speaking to them. They knew the truth, but they were blinded to it because of their sin and their hard-heartedness. We were created to recognize the voice of God, the word of God. The problem is that in unbelief, when we hear it, we do everything we can to suppress it. In our unrighteousness, we suppress the greater truth 
with other subservient truths. And the greatest truth, the truth that Jesus is Lord, he's the God of creation, the king of the coming kingdom, that's a truth that means my life has to change. My life must align with his will. And in our unrighteousness, in our sin, we don't want that truth. If Jesus is Lord, means that I can no longer chase after the things of this world, then I don't want Jesus as Lord. If Jesus is the Messiah, then I can't live my life chasing pleasure or chasing security or chasing wealth. If he's the Messiah, I know that I have to live in his kingdom, joyfully submitting to his rule over me. And I don't want that. So he must not be the Messiah. And here's my four true reasons. And all our reasoning does is build up more ill-placed confidence in ourselves. And because of our pride, we then become angry. Look what happens in Nazareth. Look at verse 57. What happens? Once they've convinced themselves of the veracity of their own argument, verse 57 says, and then they took offense at him. That's what an unbelieving heart does. It begins with a self-biased, preconceived conclusion and then builds the arguments for that conclusion and then simply restates the conclusion again. And then in arrogance... And defiance asks, how dare anyone question my airtight logic? I think, therefore, I am right. You disagree with me, therefore, I am angry. They took offense at him. How dare this mere man tell me that I should repent of anything? How dare this man command that I should worship him as Messiah and King and God? The arrogance of this Jesus. He's no different than me. Who does he think he is? They took offense at him. They became angry at him. That's the anatomy of unbelief. That's how unbelief works. And that's exactly how you and I, in our sinful pride, get stuck. Whether we get stuck in unbelief and never even begin to follow Jesus... Or we get stuck, as many of us have, at some point in our Christian walk and refuse to go further because we don't believe that it's possible. We say to ourselves, we know all there is to know about who Jesus is. We know all there is to know about what it means to follow him. And by golly, I've done a pretty good job of it. Unbelief is unbelief, regardless of the form that it takes. And it all comes out of our sinfully corrupted way of reasoning. In the same way that the people of old rejected the voice of the prophets, the same way that the Nazarenes rejected Jesus, we reject and denounce the word of God when we hear it. If that's where you are this morning, Well, there's only one 
right and good and reasonable response. And it is not to explain away what happened in Nazareth. The only right, good, and reasonable response to the voice of our Lord and Savior calling you to repent and believe is to repent and believe. Repent of your pride. Repent of your pride and your confidence in yourself. And believe that Jesus is your Messiah. That he's the king who has a rightful claim to your life. Who has a rightful claim to command you to live in such a way that your life honors him. He has the rightful claim to tell you as we heard, or as we were close to hearing in Romans 12, that the way that you worship him is to give your life over to him. Your life is the right sacrifice. Repent of your pride and believe that Jesus is the Messiah and know that Jesus is the Messiah means you're no longer Lord of your life. He is. You belong to him. He died to purchase you, to bring you into his kingdom. I want to close with this because for many of you, for some of you, whoever you're watching out there this morning, I know that at least one of you has a heart that is still resistant to this. You believe, but you want help in your unbelief. So I want you to pray Psalm 119, verse 36. Here's the psalmist's prayer. O Lord, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. That's the prayer of someone who wants to believe. Lord, turn me from who I am to who you have called me to be in Jesus Christ. Repent and believe.